Are you? You know, you folks over there, well, you can see good, can't you? It's, it's, a, it's a new day. In the old building, I had to get them all into the middle, but now I don't. All right, let's stand together. We, we're going to read quickly a lot of Bible. 21 verses, but I'm going to go through it quick. Everybody say, I believe it when I see it. I promise. Here it is. We're going to begin looking tonight at the book of Mark, and we're going to journey with Jesus through Mark. And I wanted to put the verses up here because I like for us to all look at the Bible together. So opening Mark 1, I'm going to read these verses, then I'm going to give you some, just a sort of a introduction to the book of Mark, and then we're going to begin following Jesus. How many of you want to follow Jesus? One of the best ways I know is in the Word of God. So let's read it. John the Baptist prepares the way. This is Mark 1, 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John the Baptist is quoting the verses that had to do with him, the Old Testament prophecies. Now verse 4 tells us John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him, and they were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not even worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but what will he do, everybody? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Uh, now, I'm missing verse 8 there, Marsha. Oh, is it there? Okay, we're good. You're right. Let's go tonight. I'm going to give Marsha a heart attack back there tonight. <clears throat> It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit, the Spirit descending upon him in the form of a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Now when he came out of the wilderness, it says in verse 14, after John was put into prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What did he say, everybody? I don't think most churches would have had Jesus today. Because what's the word he used? Repent and believe in the gospel. I don't think he was into seeker-friendly. Some of you don't know what that means. That's all right. Let's go on. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, look what he did. He saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, what everyone, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further uh, from there, 
he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat. Left their dad standing in the boat. All right, so it means it when it says immediately. And they left the dad in the boat with the hired servants, and they went after him. Final verse, then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And next week I'm going to deal with that one, and I'm going to call it the day that Satan, or the day the devil went to church. You know the devil still comes to church. All right, Father, we thank you for your word today. We pray your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Open our eyes and help us to follow you with all of our being. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, perk up and listen, you're going to need this tonight. Now, I want to... I'm so loving this PowerPoint. I want to just take you on a little bit of introduction about the book of Mark because I want you to know the Word of God. Uh, I, think, I think one of the reasons the church is languishing in the West, and it is, is that the, the people don't know the Word. People aren't being taught the Word. And, and so if I have you smart in anything, I want you to be smart, knowledgeable in the Word. Not where you're puffed up and strutting and acting like you're somebody, but because knowledge of the Word is knowledge of God, and knowledge of God is freedom and wisdom and victory. So I want to teach you the Word. I want you to know it. So here's the book of Mark. Let me give you a little bit of introduction here. The first three Gospels are called synoptic. Everybody say that with me? Synoptic. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, synoptic. Which means seen together or a general view or a general view of the whole of a subject. So it's like you get a synopsis on something. If I give you a synopsis on something, I'm giving you a general view of a certain thing. So when we say synoptic gospels, here's what we're talking about. Combined, the gospels present a general and a harmonized view of Jesus' life as distinguished from the gospel of John who writes for Christians as an eyewitness and for a special purpose. The value of the four gospels are this. First, it furnishes Christians with a tremendous variety of testimony concerning Jesus. I want you to know as a believer, there's overwhelming evidence of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ historically. And one of the greatest places is the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John stands alone. Here's the second thing. Jesus is presented to us from several different points of view. And we're going to see that tonight in our message. Each different yet each the same. Each a separate mirror to take in the side presented to it, but all disclosing in lifelike harmony the one grand person named Jesus. Even a man cannot be understood when seen from one point of view, how much less the Son of God. You know, if I want to find out about George Dossett, I could ask Michelle and get an earful. But then I could ask somebody who is a good friend of his and get a whole different angle. And then I could talk to his mama. And boy, would I get a different angle there. 
But do you understand that I would get different viewpoints and different emphases from whoever I spoke with. So the synoptics, including John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give us different angles of sort of like when you look at a diamond, it glistens from many different angles depending on how you turn it. You open up this Bible, if you're looking in Mark, or Mark it glistens one way, Matthew another, Luke another, and John another. But they all manifest the multifaceted glory and beauty of the person of Jesus Christ. That's the synoptics, okay? Third, it is this fourfold view that presents Jesus as the Savior of all men, of all races, and of all tendencies of thought. Now let me just show you the difference of a few. Matthew. Matthew's is the gospel for the Jews, the gospel of the past, the gospel which sees in Christianity a fulfillment of Judaism, the gospel of discourses, the didactic gospel, the gospel which represents Christ as the Messiah of the Jew, as you might find him in Isaiah 9. You will call his name Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So Matthew was written to the Jew. His emphasis is Jesus as the man, expressing the kingly and the human characteristics of Christ. Now, the one that we're going to be looking at, Mark, is the gospel for the Romans, the gospel of the present, the gospel of incident, the anecdotal gospel, the gospel which represents Christ as the Son of God and Lord of the world. And what is Mark's emphasis? It is Jesus as the lion servant, expressing courage, servanthood, dignity, and energy. That's Mark. Then you come to Luke, the third synoptic. Luke's is the gospel for the Greeks, the gospel of the future, the gospel of progressive Christianity, of the universality and gratuitousness of the gospel, the historic gospel. The gospel of Jesus as the good physician and the savior of mankind. His emphasis is Jesus as the ox, expressing power and sacrifice, his priestly and intercessory office. That's what you run into in Luke. Now you come to John, and John's is preeminently the gospel for the church, the gospel of eternity, the spiritual gospel, the gospel of Christ as the eternal son and the incarnate word. John begins just like Genesis in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And immediately John lays before us Jesus as very God. Okay? When somebody gets saved, they say, what, what do I read in the Bible? I always say the gospel of John. I want to get a whole bunch of little pamphlets of just the gospel of, or the, the gospel of John. And for those who are being saved in our church, just give them one of those. John is, is what you want to read. Now, John's emphasis is Jesus as the eagle. Because he soars to heaven above the clouds of human infirmity. And he reveals to us the mysteries of the Godhead. And the joys of eternal life. Gazing on the light of immutable truth with a keen and steady eye. That's John. So say it with me, everybody. Jesus the man, the lion servant, 
the ox, and the eagle. These four together give to us a fully orbed view of Jesus the Messiah. We need every one of them to get a full picture of him. That's why we have the synoptics and John. Now let me give you some quick facts about Mark. The key verse of Mark is, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see Jesus in the book of Mark as the servant over and over again. Mark portrays Jesus as a servant on the move, instantly responsive to the will of the Father. He is seen continuously preaching, teaching, healing. Hence, Mark is known as the action gospel, the action gospel. When you look at Matthew and Luke, you're going to find the teachings of Jesus laid out uh, at length. In Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, repeated in Luke. Uh, Long uh, uh, recordings of the teachings of Jesus are in those two. You don't find that in Mark. You find action, action, Jesus on the move. Mark is the shortest and the simplest of the four Gospels. Mark presents a crisp, fast-moving look at the life of Jesus. It reads like a morning newspaper. Unlike Matthew and Luke, Mark omits Jesus' ancestry at the beginning of his book and moves right into his busy public ministry. We don't get the genealogies and who begot so-and-so, who begot so-and-so and all of that. That's not in Mark. Mark just takes us right into Jesus on the move. Uh, in Mark, Jesus is constantly moving toward a goal, the goal of the cross. The distinctive word of this book is immediately. Once I tell you this, when you read Mark, you're not going to be able to get immediately out of your mind because it's there over and over and over again. If you've got a King James Bible, it's straightway. And straightway, Ron emptied the trash. Can you imagine using straightway? Ron, would you straightway get me a drink? Now, watch this. And it appears more often in this gospel, 42 times in fact, than in the rest of the New Testament all put together. Immediately, immediately. It is held by most scholars that uh, Mark was the first gospel written. And Mark's source was none other than who, everybody? How do we know that? Because Mark's mother, Mary, and that's not to be confused with the Mary, his own mother was named Mary, had a large house that was used as a meeting place for believers in Jerusalem. And you remember when, when Peter got delivered from prison by the angel and he went knocking on the door and they didn't believe it was him out there? That was Mark's mama's house. And you know how we know that he had gone there often? Because the servant girl recognized his voice in Acts 12, 13 through 16. It was this close association with Peter that gives the gospel of Mark apostolic authority. And I want you to catch that. He got what he got from Simon Peter and from the Holy Ghost, and he recorded it. Peter being one of the 12, it gives this book apostolic authority, which is very, very important. Okay? Now, miracles are predominant in Mark. 18 miracles in all are recorded. 
and are used to demonstrate not only the power of Jesus, but also his compassion. And that's it. That's it. So everybody say amen. I'm ready for Mark. <clears throat> now, um, what I want to do tonight is I want to take, and I'm not going to do this through the whole book, but I want to take the first three immediately's because they, they pivot on very, very crucial aspects of the ministry and the person of Jesus in the first chapter. I think I counted eight immediately's in chapter one. Immediately, immediately. But let me look at the first uh, three. The chapter opens up with John the Baptist. Now I gotta tell you, John the Baptist is, is an eccentric cat. How is it that prophetic people are so eccentric? How many of you have ever known a prophetic person? How many of you can say they were normal? Whatever normal is. How many of you can say they were a little bit, uh-huh, mm-hmm, yeah. That's right. Uh, John the Baptist was a little bit eccentric. Uh, he is, uh, he, he burst on the scene wearing camel's hair, which was, had to be uncomfortable, and eating bugs sweetened with wild honey. You didn't say to John, hey, hand me a locust. Now, in fairness, I got to tell you, in, just to be historically fair, the common people of that day ate locusts as well. And you know what? Arabs do over there now from time to time. Now, I want to tell you, I'd have to be starving to death before I ate a locust. But they do. It's not the best food in the world, but if you need to stay alive, it'll keep you alive. John's demeanor and lifestyle, as, we, as, we, as Mark opens up and we're, and we're presented John the Baptist, his lifestyle was one of temperance and pover, uh, poverty and penitence. He's so much like Elijah. That's why he was Elijah, reborn in essence or reappearing in the New Testament. He was just like him. Elijah and John the Baptist, very much alike. John denied the suggestion that he was the Messiah when he began to baptize people in the Jordan. If you've ever been in the Jordan, I have. And if you ever have a chance to go, go. But that Jordan River is freezing cold. I baptized people in it, and I got baptized in it. And I mean, you come up sort of bobbing because it's cold. But here's John. He's in the Jordan. He's fully immersing people. Now, I want you to understand when the Bible uses the word baptism, baptizo is the Greek word. It doesn't mean sprinkled. It means dunked. If you get baptized here, we put you down, and we get you to quote the Lord's Prayer before you come back up. I'm just kidding. But we do put you all the way down because baptism means to be immersed, not sprinkled. Immersed. So here he is, he's dunking people, and as he dunks them, they're repenting of their sin. But all he was was a trailblazer. He was the one born to go before the Messiah and make straight his path. So he had a divine purpose. The angel is told, had told his father, Zechariah, he's going to be the prophet of the highest, John the Baptist. But he said, I'm not the Messiah. He said, when he shows up, here's how you're going to know who he is. 
He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? He's going to fully immerse you in the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be sprinkled when it comes to the Holy Spirit. I want to be immersed. And he said, he's going to baptize you. He's going to immerse you in the Holy Spirit. That's how you're going to know that he's the one. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Holy Spirit baptizes all of us into the body of Christ. Immersed us. See, it doesn't matter what the denominational tag is. Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, doesn't matter. If you're born again, if you're a child of God, you're part of my family. And I'll fellowship with you. Because we have been baptized, all of us, into the body of Christ. But that's another message. When Jesus showed up at the banks of the Jordan, he was baptized by John, who at first said, what are you doing letting me baptize you? You should be baptizing me. And John the Baptist, or Jesus said to John, no, suffer it to be so that I would fulfill all righteousness. Baptize me, John. Can you imagine if you're John and you've already had the Holy Spirit tell you that's him, can you imagine putting down under the water the very son of the living God? Can you imagine how carefully he must have baptized him? And when he came up out of the water, we have our first immediately. It says in verse 10, immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens parting. Greek word there is torn open or rent asunder. Now, I don't know what that means, but when they were looking up into heaven, up in the sky, there was a, there was a renting, a tearing asunder, an opening, and from that opening came the Spirit of God. And it descended right over Jesus' head in the form of a dove. Wow. Now, Luke, not Mark, but Luke, adds this, that it was while Jesus prayed that the heaven was open or rent asunder and the Holy Spirit depended, or descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Now, this is where the value of the synoptics come in. You see, Mark said, as he went under the water and came up. But Luke adds, while he was in prayer, now, I believe that one of the reasons for that is God doesn't want us to think that getting baptized in water is what got him touched by the Holy Spirit. It was while he prayed, and I believe what the message of the Word is, is that it wasn't the water. It was the life of Jesus and his obedience to God. It was his overall obedience and this is why God's voice said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Why was God well pleased? Because his life had been one of perfect obedience. In all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. And it was also the coming of the Holy Spirit upon him in preparation for his showdown in the desert. That's what I like to call it. His showdown in the desert with Satan and his ministry afterward. Now, I want to pluck some principles out of these truths, and I want you to catch this. This come, brings us to our second immediately. It says, immediately after the Spirit came upon him, 
he was driven of the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. That word driven comes from a Greek word meaning to send out. He was sent out, sent into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness, we're told, 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. We also know he was fasting. He hadn't eaten a thing. 40 days with no food, driven of the Spirit into the wilderness. There in the wilderness, here's what greeted him, a lonely and a desolate place. There was no human being there to smile, to reach out an encouraging hand, and help him. He was totally and completely alone in the wilderness in terms of any human contact. And it was desolate. The second thing he encountered, and none of the other writers tell us about this, wild beasts. So I did a little exploring. What beasts were in the wilderness Jesus went into? Lions, wolves, leopards, and snakes. Here's the Son of God, and I'll tell you what I believe. You can, you can chew the meat and spit out the bones, but here's what I believe. He, he being God, the lions and the leopards and the wolves wouldn't touch him. They recognized their creator. Now that's what I believe. I believe that Jesus, you know, usually, or a lot of the times when you read about St. Francis of Assisi, for instance, it, it says that he could hold out his hand and a bird would come and land on his finger. I think that's hogwash. I've wished birds would land on my finger. They won't get near me. They're terrified of me. But I think that Jesus, the Son of God, could hold out his hand and they would land on his finger. Because he made them. He made them. But that's what was there. Lions, wolves, leopards, snakes, howlings in the night. As he sat in that wilderness place, 40 days. And then, of course, Satan himself, who in God's wisdom and ways, and I don't fully understand this, but in God's wisdom and ways, Jesus had to defeat the devil in the wilderness location before embarking on his public ministry. It was a showdown in the desert. It was a cosmic confrontation. The Son of the living God always has been, always will be. The fallen archangel, the foe, the enemy, the hater of all mankind and the source of all evil met and battled one another. And what was the battleground? The mind. What was the weapon? Truth and deception. Ideas. The knowledge of the Word of God that Jesus possessed. What did Satan attack? The truth. How did Jesus defeat him? With the truth. Matthew and Luke tell us, Mark does not, but Matthew and Luke tell us that he faced three major temptations. And all that Mark does is just lay out the fact that he went in the wilderness and fought the devil. But here's the principle. Let me share a principle with you. Often a great blessing precedes a great battle. Jesus comes up out of that water and the Spirit of God descended on him. And not just the Spirit of God, but the voice of the Father. And it said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You talk about affirmation. 
You talk about a defining moment. And yet no sooner had this blessing come upon him that he was driven into the wilderness and he faced the devil. Please understand, great warfare can either precede a great blessing or follow a great blessing. It says immediately he was driven to meet the devil and as a great blessing can precede a great test, so also a great test often precedes a great breakthrough. You know, I don't know where you are tonight. Maybe you're fighting in a financial area or you're fighting some temptation. But I, you know, it hit me tonight as I was getting ready for this that what I preach Sunday is also in this text. That, that your private battles prepare you for public ministry. And, and here's, here's Jesus. Nobody's watching this but God and the angels and the devil. There's nobody else there. And he goes into a personal, private confrontation with the adversary of his soul. And there in the wilderness, we will never comprehend what was at stake. Our salvation was at stake. The death of Christ on the cross was at stake. Jesus being the spotless Son of God was at stake. Because if he had blown it in the wilderness, he would not have been without sin. And if he had not been without sin, he couldn't have died for hours. So Satan was going for the jugular. He was going in for keeps. And Jesus defeated him. And as soon as the battle was finished, it says angels ministered to him. As soon as the victory had been won, angels are there. And I found something on top of that that really, really spoke to me. Luke tells us, not Mark, but Luke, that when Jesus went into the wilderness, he went in filled with the Spirit. The Greek word is the one we use for filled. And it's translated filled. But it says when he came out of the wilderness, it was in the power of the Spirit. Dunamis. He went in filled. He came out in the power. This is why I tell you, private victories bring public favor and private victories bring increased anointing. So you may think, well, the battles I'm going through, they don't really matter. I'm not, it's no big deal. It's just between, between me and God. And, and whether I win or lose, there's not that much at stake. Yes, there is. Because when you win a private battle, there is something about it. And I don't know exactly what all is involved, but I do know that when you win a private victory and you slay your lion and your bear when no one's looking, it increases the anointing and the favor and the power on your life. Are y'all with me? So, man... If you're, whatever your battle is, fight it and fight it to win. And if you fail, repent, get up and fight it again. Because on the other side of that victory, there is another level of anointing and another level of favor and another level of breakthrough and another level of power. <clears throat> Jesus went in filled with the Spirit, but he came out 
walked into his hometown, stood in the pulpit, opened up Isaiah 61, and he said, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Woo! And they said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Who's this cat think he's saying? Who's he think he is? Isn't this Joseph's boy? Uh-uh. Now he's standing in the pulpit in the power of the Spirit. And shortly he's going to encounter a demon in church and cast him out. Boy, that makes me want to preach next week's right now. Because I'm going to tell you, demons come to church. Now, don't look at your neighbor. Look up here at me. And then we finally, we come to the third immediately. Here's the third immediately. And it's found in the context of Jesus calling his first disciples. And I guess of the three immediately, this one touches me more than any of them. Let me just read to you Mark 1, 16 through 18. We read it, but let me do it quickly again. It says that uh, in verse 16, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, after he'd come out of the wilderness, and now he's walking in the power of the Spirit, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. And what did he say to them? Follow me, and I will make you. Now, I want you to, if you've got a pen, and I hope you've you got a Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's like you came to church in your underwear. If you don't have a Bible, tell me and I'll get you a Bible. That's your sword. Bring a Bible to church. Now, if you got your Bible and a pen, I want you to underline or circle the word become. Become. It's so powerful. Become. Become. He said, follow me and I'm going to make you to become fishers of men. Now, they gave to Jesus an immediate response. Now, I learned a long time ago that the, the people in the Bible are no different from you and me. These brothers, Peter and Andrew, were just like you and me. And I want you to catch the reality here that Jesus had to say something extremely compelling for them to leave everything. Leave their daddy standing in the boat and walk off from everything they knew and loved and were familiar with to follow Jesus. He had to have said something compelling, or you just don't do that. Now what Jesus did was he gave what we call a, a conditional promise. A conditional promise. And a conditional promise always has two things. A command, follow me. Here, here's the condition of the promise. Follow me. That's the condition. Follow me. And if you follow me, here's the promise. I will make you, I will make you to become. What a powerful word because the word become comes from a word, it's genomai. And that doesn't mean anything to you. I just like saying it, genomai, because it's the word become is what genomai is all about. And it means to come into existence to be created, to be changed radically. <clears throat> I'm not doing damage to the Word to say that it's strong enough that He's saying, I'm going to turn you into something, transform you into something totally unreachable 
apart from me. If you follow me, I'm going to bring a mighty change to your very life and character. Not just out here externally, but I'm going to change you radically on the inside. I'm going to radically change you. Get on my. I'm going to make you to become. Now, all they'd ever been was fishermen. Now, that's fine. It's a, it's a fine trade. But look how Jesus turns it. He says, you've been fishing for fish. But if you will follow me, something's going to happen to you. Radical. And it's going to be so strong that you're going to be so persuasive. Men are going to be captured by your life. Can you catch that now? Men are going to be captured by your life. I'm going to make you to become. This is where I'm going with this series on The Apprentice in just a couple of weeks on Sunday morning. Because I want you to notice the condition. Follow me. He didn't say acknowledge me and then go on back to your business. He didn't say acknowledge me on the Sabbath and the rest of the week live the way you want. He said personally, individually, Holy, completely, thoroughly, consummately follow me. And it's only in the following that you're going to become. Now, if I shared this message with most church, or I don't say most, a lot of churches out there, they would look at me like a deer stares at headlights. Because to them, you go up to a lot of people and say, Why are you in church? Well, uh, I got some friends here. Uh, you know, it's just I've always been in church. My parents were in church. Grandparents, they sat right there in the same pew I do. But why do you go to church? Well, it's just we always have. I never really thought about that. Well, you ought to. Because what it comes down to is, why are you a Christian? Why? Why are you a Christian? Well, here's why. If you're a real one, it's not because you're going to be a part of a denomination or a non-denomination like this. It's not so you can have some buddies at church. not so you can be in a holy social club. It's to follow him. It's to follow him. And you know why Christianity doesn't work for so many people? They say, well, I tried it. It didn't do a thing for me. He didn't answer my prayer. I just got into more trouble. It was a disappointment. Let me tell you why it was a disappointment. You didn't follow him. You didn't follow him. Because I know this. If you had followed Jesus, it would have worked. See, a car is made for gas, not sand. You can't get a brand new car and pour sand down the gas tank and then say, well, it didn't work for me. You got to put fuel in there, what the car was designed for. Christianity was not designed for casual Christianity. Christianity was designed for disciples. And disciples follow Him. 
Oh, we're going to get a bunch of this in the weeks to come. I'm just wetting your whistle. I promise you, there's a bunch more of this coming in the weeks to come. When the two brothers heard Jesus' words, it became like an immediate, irresistible challenge. A promise of something they had never known. Hear me carefully. Jesus' words opened a door of opportunity they had never seen. It called to something deep within them. It plucked a string in their soul. It sounded a note. It played a chord that every person desires to be played. Well, what is it? Their destiny as a human being. Jesus said, you've been catching fish, but I wired you to follow me and win men. Here's Simon Peter going, wow. See you, Dad. See you, Nets. See you, fish. And just a few years later, old salty Simon Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost. And preaches a message that if you read it, it takes three minutes to read it. 3,000 people came to Christ. Follow me, Peter, and I'm going to make you to not just do something, but to be something. And for the rest of his life, he was a fisher of men. Peter has caught me. His life, I thank God for Simon Peter's life. So here's Jesus, three immediately's. Immediately the Spirit came upon him. Immediately he was driven into the wilderness. Immediately the disciples responded to his profound call. Where are you tonight? Are you following Jesus? We're going to see what that means in the weeks to come, but I'm going to ask you to stand with me tonight. Isn't this good stuff? Oh, I love this. Follow Jesus. Father, we thank you for Jesus, the person Jesus, the Savior. The same call that he gave to Peter and Andrew and James and John He's put to us, follow me, and I will make you to become. Now, Father, we pray that tonight you will help us to respond to that call and follow you all the days of our life. I want you to take a minute. As Tom just plays, I want you to say, Lord, I want 08 to be a year of discipleship like I have never known. I want to follow Jesus. And in following him, I want to become what my destiny has for me in God. You go ahead and pray. Go ahead and just talk to the Lord for a minute before we go tonight. Thank you, Lord.